Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. My dear friends, this is the 18th sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And our study this evening is James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. We've reached the final sentences of James's letter. And this evening, I've taken the unusual step of scrolling back our text to matters we have already studied in our series, back to verse 13, because it's here that James sets the context of prayer. And more specifically, it's where he names the prayer of faith in verse 15. So my purpose in the sermon this evening is to answer a simple question. What is the prayer of faith? Because in my preparation, I discovered that over the last 150 years or so, much has been written about the prayer of faith. It turns out the prayer of faith is the cornerstone of the Word of Faith movement. You find it on radio and television and across the internet. This is a worldwide Christian charismatic heresy. Yes, heresy, I use that word selectively and only occasionally, but I do think that this is because it actually compromises the integrity of the natures of Christ and his atoning work. But I will be talking about that this evening. Rather, I want to focus in on how they understand this, because this has become such a worldwide phenomenon in terms of the prayer of faith. They teach that Christians can access the power of faith through speech. It renounces poverty, physical suffering, as either necessary to a godly life or glorifying the Lord Jesus. Rather, it teaches that salvation won by Jesus on the cross also includes wealth and prosperity for believers. It has another name. Maybe you've heard of this one, the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology or the health and wealth gospel. The focus is on mountain-moving prayer by which we simply claim things from God with confidence. We name them and we claim them and we pray the prayer of faith. And he will give it to the believer because we believe that he will, that he will give them. So I thought it would be best to rewind the tape to 13 and just move ahead from there as you heard the lesson read this evening to track how James writes about prayer in this final paragraph of his letter so we can understand how he understood the prayer of faith in verse 15 that's been so twisted by this false gospel of the word of faith movement. Now, the first thing that he does here, and it's an important one, really, is that there's an affirmation 
in the prayer of the righteous person. The righteous person. So who is the righteous person? And next he gives his famous illustration, the example of the prophet Elijah. So let's look at this affirmation first. It's in the second half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And the prayer of faith, there it is, will raise up the sick. So let's ask the question, who is the righteous person? I think we're going to ask, you know, the man in the street who they think is the righteous person. I guess they would think of someone who we would say was self-righteous. In other words, uh, to say someone is righteous is to mean that they're self-righteous. In other words, they, they have a lot of good things and good deeds and good works that they've done. It, that is their own, their own righteousness. And this kind of self-righteous person can even indeed be unpleasant to be around because they're proud of their righteousness. Now clearly this isn't the type of person that James means here. But it's also clear that he doesn't mean a person who's gained a high level of perfection either. If you can find a person who's done a thousand good deeds and perhaps they're thinking, well, you know, God will listen to that person. He'll say, well, my son, my daughter, you've done so much. I can see it in the scales here. Yes, indeed. So I'm going to answer your prayer. James is not using righteousness on a weighed scale to barter with God. No, he is not. So who is the righteous person? It is the person who has come to recognize that it is by God's grace by God's covenant faithfulness and through his sacrificial mercy in Christ that has brought him or her into a relationship with him so that their lives are transformed, they're turned around completely. And that person who has embraced this grace of God, this faithfulness, is trusting in this great gift in Christ, are living out their lives more and more according to his revealed word. In other words, in accord to what God promises to do in the scriptures. That's how we understand it in the Psalms. When we might read, the psalmist says something like, Lord, Hear me in my righteousness. Now we know that that's not on the basis of your good works. So what is going on here? How can David, indeed David, would, would sing this? David, the adulterer, the murderer, who then sings, Lord, hear me in your righteousness. Well, it's because he knew his Torah. He knew the first five books of Moses. Much as Father Abraham says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let the, them hear them. This is what he sings, you see, in the Psalms, David. O oh Lord, on the basis of your covenant mercy and faithfulness to me, a sinner, 
on the basis of your promise to provide for my sin, by your covenant spirit, I am beginning to walk in the ways you have set. O Lord, do what you promised to do. Hear me in your righteousness. Or if I put it another way, the righteous person that James means here is precisely the person who does not trust in what he or she has done. But they are trusting in God's covenant love and mercy. That very promise that brought the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin and to which all the sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple pointed and taught, as we discovered in our study of the Sermon to the Hebrews. And so Old Testament believers are enriched in this great biblical principle. They're overwhelmed in it to trust and to obey, to trust and obey. Looking ahead to that promise of the great high priest to come who would fulfill all righteousness on their behalf. The Jesus who is promised. So the prayer of the righteous person is the one who is living in the light of what Jesus did and who is sustained by his word in the gospel. That's the person who will find their prayers answered. In other words, it is the believer, not just in the Old Testament or the early church, but indeed ourselves today who are trusting, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it works because it is a prayer of great faith. And just to make sure this is understood, James illustrates this in the experience of one individual, the prophet Elijah. And once again, James, as we have seen, like the rest of the New Testament authors, turns to the Old Testament examples of a living faith. Now just to pause for a moment, isn't it fascinating how they do this? What do we learn here? We learn that there is one way of God's grace. There is one way of salvation. It's not that there is one way in the Old Testament and another in the New Testament. We have seen, haven't we, if you want to see a life of great faith, what it looks like, look at Abraham. If you want to see someone enduring terrible trial, significant trial, look at Job. And do you want To learn how to pray, look at Elijah. So now we come to Elijah's example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now the mention of Elijah especially caught the ear of James's Hebrew audience, and I would guess it would do the same for a committed believer today. I don't know about you, but I always look forward in my 
Bible reading plan, my annual reading plan, to reach 1 Kings 17 that Frank read this evening. The first mention of Elijah the Tishbite. The narrative just grips you in this fighting life and death battle with the idolatrous Ahab and Jezebel. There's the contest with the prophets of Baal. That's something I think I first saw on the rug in my kindergarten Sunday school class on the good old flannel graph. Anybody remember the flannel graph? Probably not, no. The young kids are saying, I don't even know what you're talking about at all. But some of us ancient folk might be able to tell you more about it later on. The flannel graph. There it was, the prophets of Baal. There is Elijah. His fleeing for his life to Horeb, learning the secrets of God's presence in the cave there as he comes in the sheer silence. God assuring him that there are thousands who have not yet bowed to Baal. Raising the dead son of the pagan widow of Zarephath that Jesus himself makes an example in the synagogue in his hometown. Multiplying her meal and oil, fed from the beaks of ravens at the wadi in Kirith, feasting in the wilderness at the hand of angels, foretelling both famine and the coming of rain, outrunning, how he did this, I don't know, Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. I just assume Ahab got stuck in the mud because of the rain. And finally vanishing from the earth in a chariot of fire. My goodness be Elijah. Yet we're going to miss James's teaching if we miss the basic thrust, the qualification he makes here. Because he uses Elijah as an example, not because he was an extraordinary man. It is not as though Elijah is on some spiritual A-list of believers, towering somewhere far above you and me. But James draws our attention to the fact that Elijah was a man, a human being, just like you. See the qualification there? He was a man with a nature like ours. He had the same human nature, the same fallible passions as us. He was an ordinary mortal. Just like Paul shouts the pagan crowd at Lystra when they thought he and Barnabas were the gods come to earth, Zeus and Hermes in Acts chapter 14. Therefore, Elijah's experience has the lesson for all believers. It's his ordinariness that's in view. So James is saying to you and me, on the power of prayer and on the example of Elijah to not try and put Elijah in a different category from you. So it is in the very fact of Elijah's ordinariness that James explains how the prayer of faith was instrumental in shutting the heavens. Here it is. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That's the prayer of faith example. Now, he's using this as an example, not because it produced a miracle-like effect, but because it gives us one of the clearest of all illustrations of what it means for any believer 
to pray with faith. How was Elijah able to pray the prayer of faith? He's just like David. He knew his Bible. He knew his Torah. It's believing God's revealed word in the scriptures. It's taking hold of the Lord God's covenant commitment to it and asking God to keep it. You see, shutting up the heavens was not, after all, a novel idea that popped into the fertile mind of Elijah. What is it then? It's the fulfillment of a promised curse of the covenant Lord given in the scriptures. We've seen this biblical principle in our study of the minor prophets, haven't we? The land of promise was, as it were, a litmus paper measuring the covenant faithfulness of the Israelites. So here's the example that Elijah knew, taken from Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. Moses is reaffirming the covenant made at Sinai. And as he's doing so, before he goes to Nebo to die, and Joshua will lead them across the Jordan into the promised land, Moses says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Like what? Verses 22 to 24. The Lord will strike you with fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So you see what's happening here. Elijah sought to align his life with God's covenant promises and threats. This is what righteousness means in the Old Testament. We've just examined that. To be rightly, covenantly related to the Lord God. He lived his life in light of this covenant that God had made. And so he held on to its threats of judgment in prayer as well as to his promises in blessing. So this then is the biblical principle. The prayer of faith is this, to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. That promise is the only ground for our confidence in asking. Such confidence is not worked up from within our own emotional life. Rather, it is given and supported by what God has said in the scriptures. So truly, righteous men and women of faith know the value of their heavenly Father's promises. They go to him as children do to a loving human parent. They know that if they can say to an earthly parent, but but you promised, they can both persist and ask it and be confident that that parent will be reminded and their conscience will be pricked and they will keep their word. How much more, therefore, will your heavenly Father, who has given his Son already as surety, as a sign of that promise completed for your salvation, keep his word to you. 
We have no other grounds of confidence that he hears our prayers. Indeed, we need none. Now, what application can we give? I admit some Christians might find this disappointing. It seems to remove the mystique from the prayer of faith. Are we not tying down our faith to ask only for what God has already promised? But I would suggest that if there is that disappointment, that somehow people think that prayer is something else more mystical, that it actually reveals a spiritual poverty there. It's a concern that a pastor should have for that Christian and fellow believer. That we would rather somehow devise our own spirituality, preferably a spectacular one, than God's frequently modest. The struggles we sometimes experience in prayer then are often part of the process by which God gradually brings us to ask for only what he has promised to give. The struggle is not our wrestling to bring him to give us what we desire, but our wrestling is with his word, the scriptures, until we are illuminated until we are subdued by it, saying at last in confession, not my will, but your will be done. John Calvin says it like this. We learn as believers not to ask for more than God allows. That's why true prayer can never be divorced from the pursuit of holiness, that that pursuit that we have to continue to trust and to learn to trust more and more in the great promises of God and the scriptures. The prayer of faith can be made only by the righteous man or woman whose life is being more and more aligned with the covenant grace and purpose of God. What James is telling us, which is so encouraging to us as believers, is that what delights our Heavenly Father the most is when we come to him to say, Father, you promised, and I believe your promise. And I'm asking in that conviction that you keep that promise. Notice, it's not a prayer of desperation but it is a prayer of faith. Now, in his infinite mercy, God does hear us in our desperation, but he has promised to hear us in faith that takes hold of what he promises to do. Now, here's a challenge for you this week for homework. Write down all the promises of God that you remember. Just give that a try this week. And maybe, just maybe, you will say by the end of that week, my goodness, out of the hundreds of promises that God has given, I only can recall these few. Have I truly been living on the promises of God? Oh, Lord, I need to know your promises as well as Elijah did. 
who was an ordinary man, just like me. You see, my dear friends, we need to learn to live the whole of our lives trusting in God's promises, but we must know God's promises, don't we? Then we can pray with conviction, Father, this is what you have promised to do. And then we'll see that the prayer of faith is not something I work up in my desperation. It is what God makes in me by his spirit, through the power of his promises. The realization that I I have received wonderful promises, God's promises, and I'm drawn to them, to believe in them, to trust in them. And that's why those who receive those promises, Jesus could say, what you pray will be given to you. It is not my will, but your will and mine so aligned with yours that I believe you will keep what you have promised. And my dear friends, you do not learn that in your hour of desperation. You don't get that kind of understanding, that kind of access, by neglecting your Heavenly Father most of your life. You get that kind of access when you're able to say, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand. And when you have that kind of fellowship with him, like a child who comes bursting in the house, secure that they are home safe with the ones who love them. They trust them who made the promise that it is as good as theirs. So here is the great question to ask. Do I usually pray the prayer of desperation and not the prayer of loving communion, which begins, Father, you promised. Elijah learned how to do this. He had the same scriptures you have. So it means we can as well because he was just like you. Lord, teach me to pray just as you promised. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.